Hello. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allows you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to see all of you streaming as well. My name is Pastor David. If you are visiting with us, I'm the associate pastor here at West Hill. Um, pastor Aaron has been going through the book of Acts with us, and I'm just going to continue that right along. So if you want to get your Bibles out, uh, it'll also be up on the screen, but we'll be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30 today. Um, very interesting section. Um, Pastor Aaron pretty much just finished up talking about one of the main points being how God does not show partiality when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is available for everyone. Um, anyone can believe in him and have faith in him, and we definitely See that heading into this next section as well, as uh, we have the Gentiles and Antioch starting to come to faith. Um, there's a lot in this section, so we're going to read through it first. Um, as we read, though, and, and this is for all of Acts, and I'm sure PA hit on this earlier at the beginning, it's history. I always try to tell the teens, I always tell my kids as well, when you're reading certain parts, it is history. So this has actually happened, and I, sometimes I think we lose the thought of that when we're reading the Bible. Sometimes when we're going through God's Word and reading Scripture, we're like, oh, that's a great story, good thing to learn. No, this actually happened. So I think of having that mindset of history as we read through this as a great mindset to have. Um, I actually took a class on Acts in my going through my master's and stuff. And since I finished that not too long ago, it was one of my most recent classes. And it was probably one of my favorite classes. So this is a great section to preach on. Um, and there is a lot of history in it. So you'll, you'll get preaching from me, but you're also going to get teaching from me as well. Because I love to teach. And there's some sections in here that I definitely want to point out as we go through. Um, and, I'll, and you'll see that as well. Um, but being one of my favorite classes, certain things definitely stood out to me. Um, but what was not my favorite part of the class as we went through Acts was that every single week for eight weeks, we had to read through the whole book every single week to get context of what we were talking about. And that was a lot. You say, oh, that's not that much. Well, it is a lot when you've got other things going on. And I know you guys have a lot of things going on as well. Um, but I got to the point where I, we were allowed to do audio, so, and Pastor Aaron knows about this because he's done this with me before too, but you, there are certain audio Bibles that you can speed up the speaking. And so while you're doing things, taking a shower or whatever, you can put it on 1.5 or two times or 2.5 times. It gets to the point where you can't understand it and you're really not doing the work, so you have to slow it down to, to be able to understand, but... That was definitely one of the hardest, hardest parts of the class, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to this today and, and preaching about this as we focus on the word Christian. Um, this section is one of the, the first times, the first time they say that, that the word Christian was actually used for believers, and it's done in Antioch, and we'll get to that verse, and we'll talk about it more there. Um, but just to, to be able to focus on that, focus on the fact that this was actually history as we read through it. Um, and then Christian, what does that, what does the word Christian mean to you? Um, I know for, for believers, it can mean one thing for those who don't know who Christ is. It can mean something quite different to a Christian is. Um, so please think about that as we read through it. Um, but first, before we dig into his word, let's, let's pray. 
Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for this time that we can get into scripture, Lord, to what you have for us, to what you have written. Lord, we, we pray that we are able to learn a lot from this day, that we can take home and be able to apply it to our lives, um, a certain application, Lord, that you have for us. We thank you that we, we have these words to be able to read about what happened to the early Christians and be able to learn from them and to see what, how you are working in their lives as well. Pray that you bless this time. Lord, I pray it be your words and not mine. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Acts 11, 19 through 30. We'll read straight through it, and then we'll go back and go verse by verse and see what, what God has for us. So verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great man and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It's a lot of stuff. To go through. Um, I'm able to tell about how long my sermons will be because I do things, I set my sermons up a little different than PA. He, he is able to write a few notes and, and outlines and stuff like that. I don't do that. I actually write out stuff and I think it through and whatnot and have my sentences here. I don't always say I'm like, this is not in my paper right now. <laughs> But based off of how many pages I have, I can say about how long it's going to be. But the problem is, my eyes, I should be wearing my glasses. So I've made it bigger print. So <laughs> it's longer. But we do have a lot to dig into, and that has nothing to do with what we're talking about now. It's all right. So getting into verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Uh, we, have the, we have followed this section following the tragic death of Stephen, and the, the church continues to grow. And I think that's an important piece to point out, is that during per persecution, we always see this, the church grows. There is lots of growth in persecution. Um, it doesn't hold back the believers. Uh, their focus in these verses, it says that they are speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So these specific ones are speaking to the Jewish people. That was their focus. But the focus changes as we go to the next verse, and it says in verse 20, 
But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And I know Pastor Aaron has gotten on this as well, but Hellenists is the Greeks or the non-Jews. It's the people who are not the Jewish people. So we had some who were focused on speaking to the Jewish people, and now we have some who are focused on speaking to everyone, which could be the non-Jewish, but the Jewish as well. Um, which follows off of what Pastor Aaron just spoke on the last two weeks. The gospel is available to everyone, and we see that here now immediately as they head to Antioch. And it does make a difference when you think about it. It makes a difference to know who you're speaking to. God calls us all to share his word and to share the gospel, each one of us. No one has an excuse here. Um, but it does make a difference at times knowing who you're talking to and how you approach them and how you can talk to them about God's word. Now, you don't always have that ability to know, but there are times where you do. Um, there's a perfect example of, and this is one of the things in my class that we talked about and we analyzed a ton, was what Peter's sermon um, on, and Pentateuch. And, what am I saying that right? Right? What? Pentateuch. No, at Pentecost. There we go. The Sermon at Pentecost. See how combining two words. Is it the table up here, Pastor Aaron? <laughs> so Peter's sermon in Acts 2 to them is way different than Paul in Acts 17, verse 22, when he's speaking to those who are non-Jewish. If you want something to, to analyze and to compare, write that down. The sermon in Acts 2 of Peter to, the, to, to Paul preaching to those in Acts 17, 22, and see their approaches are completely different based on who they are talking to. And so times it is good to know who you're talking to and how you approach them. It's pretty awesome to look at the two comparisons. Um, and then moving on, it says in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what is the hand of the Lord? We are, and I already said this, we are told to share the good news. Those of you who believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, those of you who are Christians, we are told, commanded to share the good news. However, it is only through God that that believer or that that person comes to know him. Anything else, it is God. Us even sharing, it is God. We are told to do it, but it's nice to know in a way that the results is not up to us. The results is not us at all. It is God's hand. God's hand has to be on it. So we can rest assured that we don't have to have the most eloquent tongue. We don't have to have, be the best preacher. We don't have to be the best speaker or whatever. We are just asked to share his word in one form or another. And then God has it. It's in his hands. And in this instance, it was a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And one of the things that stood out to me in, in that section there, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord, there's no other prerequisite. It's they believed. There's no needing of baptism. There's no mention of speaking in tongues to believe. There's no mention of money. There's no mention of being, having to work or to be better to get into heaven or to believe. They just had to believe. Many, great number, believed and turned to the Lord. That's an awesome thing. I don't know why we try to make it harder than it is, but oftentimes we do. 22, verse 22. 
The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So there seems to be, as we read through this, there's like a home base, and that's the church in Jerusalem. As things are starting to spread, as churches are starting to form, they are definitely having communication in some way or another heading back to the church in Jerusalem. And this church then felt that it was time for Barnabas to come and be an encouragement. And it's not that he's coming to inspect them. It's not that he's coming to change what they're doing, the methods that they're doing, or any of that. He is coming to encourage them and to help them with what is going on, which is amazing. that they, I mean, they have that connection there. They're wanting to see and help these churches spread and continue to grow. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, this is Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So Barnabas didn't just come and start helping with things. He noticed, he visibly saw that something was different. He saw that there was new believers. He saw the effect that God was having on these new believers and the result of God's power in their lives. So they were actually able to see what was going on. And it just makes me, it makes me wonder and think, and this goes to me too, do others know, based off of what they see in our lives, that God is working in us? that there is grace. Are others able to see God's grace in our lives, in my life? So as I go about my business, as I go about and go into the shopping or do whatever, talk to others, as I represent Christ, is it visible that God's grace is in my life? Because they were actually able to see it. Verse 21, Barnabas exhorted the new believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Exhorted means to encourage. He encouraged them. So it wasn't a chastising. It was an encouragement. He lifted them up to remain faithful, which means here to abide in the Lord or to remain in the Lord. Why do they need to remain in the Lord? Well, there's persecution. There's hardship going on during this time as God's word is spreading. People don't like what they're hearing. They don't like what's going on. So he's encouraging to remain faithful. With a steadfast purpose. This means to have a resolute heart. To have a resolute heart. You know your purpose now. That's basically what it's saying. Barnabas is saying, you know your purpose. You're a new believer. Or an old believer. I don't know. You know your purpose. And you will not steer away from it no matter the cost. He is encouraging them to stick with it to the end. Again, they just have that, that extreme example of Stephen to the death. And he is encouraging these people through this persecution, this hard times. You're a new believer. Stay faithful in the Lord. Continue to learn. And have a steadfast purpose, no matter the cost. And we'll talk about that more later as well as we take that and apply that to our lives as well. Verse 24, for he was a good man, again talking about Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas is getting quite the praise here. Um, he is quite the man. 
uh, and quite the leader to an example to others. Uh, but part of that is, and we see that here, why, why is everything going so well? He was full of the spirit, meaning all the encouragement and the leadership was actually the spirit working through Barnabas. Again, it wasn't just him. It wasn't his doing. It was God's working through him using the spirit. The same spirit that we have today. It's amazing what God can do through us if we allow him to work through us, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. A lot can be accomplished. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. How do we know Saul is in Tarsus? Well, it's where he was born, first of all. That's one thing. And it's because where he was sent in Acts 9.30. We've already gone through that section. In Acts 9.30, Paul was... Saul. Paul. Saul was stirring up trouble, not purposely, but uh, because he loved at that point preaching the gospel. Um, and then the following verses says, after, that, after they sent him away, um, because they wanted him dead, the people there, after they sent him away, there was peace. And here's the thing. Saul was all in. He was an all in type guy. Unfortunately, he was all in when it came to persecuting the Christians at the beginning. And then Christ came into his life, and now he is all in for sharing who Jesus is. And that was causing trouble, and that's why they sent him to Tarsus. And so that's where Barnabas knew where to go look for him. And then 26, it says, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, there's a lot to break down in this verse. So the thing that first goes in my head as I read something like this, and often when I read different parts of the Bible, is first of all, he found Saul and brought him to Antioch. Barnabas is making a lot of trips here. So in my head, I know this doesn't like really help me grow in Christ, but in my head, it's like, how long is he taking this is a lot of, of, of trips, a lot of work. Um, these are not some simple journeys that are going on that Barnabas is going to. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a plane. He's traveling somehow, walking, riding a camel, donkey, whatever it is. Um, but he's got to get there. He's got to go to Antioch, or he's got to go to Tarsus and bring Paul, Saul back to Antioch. All right? So how long does that take? So I looked it up. I actually was able to Google it first on maps, too, because they still have some of those cities in there. But then I went to the commentaries and whatnot. Um, but just thinking of this being history again, and it actually happened, it is about 130 miles is the trip. So we think 130 miles, we're like, oh, okay, a couple hours, maybe two and a half hour trip, you know, by car, going 60-ish mile per hour on, on the highway there and back. So... For Barnabas, though, and it was calculated to be, because of having to stop and different things, it would have been about an eight-day journey is what it would have been. So something that takes us two to three hours now would have taken him about eight days there and eight days back, which is crazy. But I, I think it's neat to know that and to be able to apply that as you're reading through this and to see what they're going through as they're fulfilling what God wants for them to do and what Jesus wants them to do. So it gives us an idea of how committed 
Barnabas and these believers were to Jesus and the mission he had for them. Then on top of that, not only is he making these travels, he is also then staying with Saul in Antioch for a year to help encourage the church, to help teach and to help them learn and help them grow, which is amazing. And then on top of that, it doesn't even consider, I didn't even look up Jerusalem. You have Barnabas who came from Jerusalem. That journey would have been even longer. So if you want to look up something, I didn't do that, but if you want to look that up, find out how long it took from Jerusalem to Antioch. Let me know so I don't have to do it. In verse 26, or no, then it said they met, they met for a year with the church and, and taught. What did they teach? They taught Jesus. They gathered with, gathered with the church in Antioch and due to the teaching of Christ and his ways to the believers and the unbelievers, the next verse mentions disciples. Those who learned and were followers of Jesus here were first called Christians. They were first called Christians. What does that mean? At this time in Antioch, what does that mean? Because again, Christian means something to us. To us, it means we're a follower of Christ. If I claim to be a Christian, it's because I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and rose again three days later, and that he is Lord of my life. I call myself a Christian. What is it? What do we have here when they are first called Christians? Here in Antioch, during that time, the the term Christian was used by outsiders or someone referring to outsiders. It was not a term claimed by believers until the second century. I also like to look into history stuff. So when else did other people call Christians Christians in history? Not just what we have in the Bible, but where else? And of course it's out there and and it's fun to read that stuff. So, and see how they coincide. And it confirms, not that I needed the confirmation for the Bible, but you have around the same time people calling Christians or believers Christians. This term was also used by Josephus, a historian that we've talked about before here. Um, It was used by Pliny. And this one name that I don't remember how to pronounce, Tacitus or Tacitus, I don't know, also used the term Christians in their history, in their writings. And Tacitus' last major work was written in 116 to 117 AD. And it includes a biography of Nero. And it says in 64 AD, during a fire in Rome, Nero was suspected of secretly ordering the burning of a part of town where he wanted to carry out a building project. He was a crazy guy. So he tried to shift the blame to the Christians. And here's what's translated by this historian and it gives you an idea, and it shows you what, why they called these Christians Christians. And this is the quote, Lene, if you want to put it up for me, please. You can read along as I read it. It says, Neither human effort, nor the emperor's generosity, nor the placating of the gods ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. It is written like that on purpose on there because of how it was translated. The founder of this name, Christ, or Christus in Latin, 
had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate, which all that's in the Bible, obviously. Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, so this is talking about the new, after Christ died, and then Christianity, the, the believers started spreading God's word again, um, the origin of this evil, but also in the city of Roman, Rome, where all things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. So this was a historian, not a Christian, talking about the Christians of that time. So why is this in my sermon? Well, I think it continues to remind us that these are not just good stories, but that it happened. We have them in the history books. We have them in the Bible. Um, Christians were going through persecution. They were not looked they weren't looked at well at all during that time. And that leads to the term Christian. It was used by the Gentiles, the non-Jewish, and was probably not supposed to be a compliment, but something to relate them to Christ in a negative way. It was used as a negative term to start with. Um, it was a way for others to know who this group was immediately. So if someone said, hey, there's the Christians, they knew immediately, oh, those are the followers of Christ. Believers back then, we have in the Bible, called themselves other names, brethren, disciples, saints. Saul, before he was Paul, said that those who belong to the way, that was another name. The term Christian is used three times in the Bible. It's used here in Acts 11, 26. It's also used in Acts 26, 28. Acts 26, 28, and also in 1 Peter 4, 16. And it's interesting how Peter uses it in 1 Peter because he's encouraging the believers. He's saying, he says, don't be ashamed if you are called a Christian. So if you're being called Christian, that derogatory word, don't be ashamed. It's not a shameful thing. This is my rendition. Don't, that's not word for word. Glorify God in that name. So don't think of it as a bad thing. Glorify God in that name, because you are a follower of Christ. So what does Christian mean? It means what the Greeks were saying. Hey, look at that Christian. Look at that follower of Christ. Man, how could you even follow Christ? He's dead. How could you even follow him? And then they would say something like, this is, again, me. They would say something like, he's not dead. He's alive, and let me show you how he's alive. So they, they owned it, they took it, and they were able to use it as a follower of Christ. Is that you? Are you a follower of Christ? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he is alive and working today? Are you a Christian? And we'll talk more about that again at the end as we apply everything. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So we have a prophet here, under the power of the Spirit, says there will be a famine. And Luke, thankfully, gives a lot of detail of when this will be, because then I can go and look it up and see if it's in the history books, too, because I like to do that. And it is, no surprise. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the details or quote things, but jo Josephus, the historian, along with Roman historians, Santonius and Tacitus guy again, also mention 
that there is a famine during the reign of Claudius, both who, who mention a bad harvest being the cause of the famine. So there's evidence there, uh, external evidence as well, including the Bible, which is awesome. The Bible is true. Not that we need those to prove it, but it's a great thing. Verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So no matter what church they were from, they were all part of the family of God, and they were part of supporting each other. They wanted to send relief. They wanted to be there for each other. And there was no specific amount, but it was whatever God was calling them to give and to do personally. And they did so, verse 30, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so we, we end this chapter on a high note of the church coming together in difficult times, being there for each other in a way that we can't really imagine right now, to be honest, at least not us right here. There are churches that can, but they're coming together to support each other during persecution, during hard times. And one of the, one of the books I read said, how awesome would it be for the American church to be supporting, and we do this, we do this in ways, to be supporting the less richer churches in the world. And there's that, there's that cohesiveness, though, where that less richer church then is then sharing and supporting what they are learning and their passion and what they are getting from Christ and sharing that with, with the rich church of America as well and how God allows for all families of God to work together in that way and to encourage each other and to be there for each other. Um, how amazing that would be. Unfortunately, following this chapter, it does lead then straight into persecution and the killing of James, the brother of John. And so we have that high note of them coming together, but then it leads into more persecution. And again, that is, that is their life. That is where they are as we read through this. And so I just have a few questions as we end here, um, just to, for us to think about and to challenge ourselves about. Again, basic question, are you a Christian? Remember this term was given to those who are followers of Christ. It wasn't supposed to be a kind term. It was supposed to be a derogatory term. Unfortunately, over the years, the term Christian has become known as like the killjoy of society, the, the boring group who doesn't want to change or update or this or that. But it's not that. We are the ones who hold God's word as truth, no matter what change is happening, because God's word does not change. And so what can we do and, and what should we do is to, as believers, is to hold God's word as truth and be able to show Christ's love to everyone who is around us and speak that truth into them. The world will always, the world will always not understand what God's word is until he opens their eyes. We can continue to share the gospel with them, to love them until he does that. Again, it is him doing the work, not us. Is being a Christian important to you? If you say you are a Christian, then you're claiming to be a follower of Christ. And that means a whole lot more than just being part of a group or a club or a church. It means Christ is Lord of your life. It means relationships. It means being part of a family that is not your immediate family 
with all the good and the bad that comes along with it. It means persecution. We know different extents of persecution. Some have had it, some have not. Some have had it more than others. Following Christ is not easy. It can be hard putting him before everything, putting him before friends, putting him before popular things in the culture, before family, before our selfish desires. It's putting Christ first. Being a Christian means we only follow him and nothing else. This was hard for the disciples who deserted him and denied him before he went to the cross. So if it was hard for them, of course it's going to be hard for us as well. It's not easy. But Jesus never said it would be easy to follow him. We are to strive to be like him, and we don't do it alone. We have the Holy Spirit, which I was talking about earlier, who helps us know the scriptures. He empowers us with spiritual gifts. He comforts us, and he guides us. We have the Holy Spirit. Truly following Jesus means you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that you want him to be Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, I challenge you to really deeply pray about it and consider it because it is the most important decision you could ever make. So I say that for us here and all this I've been saying for those who are streaming as well. So are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, can others see the grace of God through you and your actions? We talked about this. Can they see it through my actions? What a time to ask that right now as everyone's on the edge about everything. Can others see the grace of God through you and how you're acting? Is there evidence of Christ in your life? You don't need to prove your way into heaven, but... If you know Christ as your Savior, you are supposed to be living for him. It should be visible and for others to see. And then lastly, when persecution comes, will you be steadfast? Again, we read more about persecution starting in the next chapter, and Pastor Aaron will get into that. That was their lives. I pray that we could be as steadfast as them. I pray here at West Hill, what would it be like if we could be as steadfast and purposeful steadfast as they were back then? How much more could God do with us as a church and with us individually if we were all in? Again, that is difficult and that's hard at times because there's other things that we want to put first but Christ is the one that needs to be first. So those are my challenges for, for us here, and I just pray that, uh, that as we head out, we seriously consider them. It's not, uh, these people were suffering. They were going through persecution. That was, this is history. That's what they went through. And we're able to thankfully learn from what they, they went through and to be those examples to others around us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for for this day. Lord, we thank you for what we just read, what we studied, Lord, and what we went through and what you brought to us. And Lord, I just pray that, that we would take what your son Jesus did on the cross for us seriously. Or if we call ourselves a Christian, I pray that we would show it. I pray that we would live it. I pray that we would put Jesus first in our lives and call him Lord of our lives. 
I pray that we would show that priority to others. And for those who don't know Christ, as I said earlier, I pray that, that you would work in their heart, that you would open up their eyes, that you are the only way, Lord. You are the way. It's not easy, but you give us peace and hope. You give us understanding. You give us the ability to go each day. You give us the Holy Spirit, and we give you thanks for that. Lord, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.